We cannot keep our grip on him. He's the one that holds us in his never-failing grip. And that's a beautiful uh, reminder of that. So I, I love, uh, love singing that. I've noticed lately with all the talk of the economy and, and stuff that, um, you know, everyone is kind of always looking for the sure thing. You ever notice that? Like they, want, they want to put their money in the place that's going to gain the most, and they want to know it's going to happen for a fact. Uh, they don't want to be speculative. They want a guarantee. And, and it's so funny, because in the real world, as much as you go to these places, and they'll tell you, yeah, if you put this much in, you're going to get this much out, or if you take this course of action, this is going to be the outcome. And there's experts that come in and, and various people that would you know, make these guarantees. In reality, we find out that those are not uh, always things that come true. As a matter of fact, in the real world, very often, the promised sure thing results in someone losing a whole lot of money. And uh, I recently came across a, uh, something online with the most expensive mistakes of all time. And it was quite a list. Quite a list. Uh, for example, the, um, the sale of Alaska to the United States by Russia... Yeah, that was a bad move. I think uh, it was sold for something along the lines of you know, $7.2 million back in the day. Um, and yet now it's valued. Of course, there was, no one knew there was gold there. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that. Didn't realize there was oil there. And uh, the net worth is astronomical now in terms of that, that place. Um, there's another example, though, that I came across I thought was interesting. The, um, Think about this. There's, this. there's a ship. It's called the Vasa. And uh, it was promised to the Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus back in 1624 as a sure thing by a, a designer named Henrik Hybertson. Matter of fact, he was known as Master Heinrich. And it was supposed to be the most spectacular warship of its era back in that time, 1624. It was going to be the new flagship of the Swedish Navy. And it was unveiled... Uh, on uh, August, by the time it was completed, it was unveiled in August of 1628. But to the shock of thousands of onlookers there, before it actually got beyond Stockholm Bay, where it was launched from, it, it just barely got outside the bay, a large gust of wind came along, the ship capsized, and it sank 105 feet below the surface. Like that. The king was furious. Fortunately for him, Heinrich was dead by this time. <laughs> okay? Because if he wasn't, the king would have killed him. Uh, in the king's currency, the, the ship cost more than 200,000 rex dollars, which amounted to, at that point in time, over 5% of Sweden's gross national product for that year. So think about that. Uh, in other words, one twentieth of the nation's annual income was suddenly at the bottom of Stockholm Harbor. And uh, the equivalent percentage of S Sweden's GMP today would be about $25.6 billion. One ship. <laughs> bottom of the ocean. And uh, so there was a recovery process that took place back in 1956. And um, there was a, about... $110 million spent to get the ship out of the water. It's in a museum now, so you can go see it today if you want. But uh, what was the reason for, the, for it happening? Uh, well, 
As it turns out, the design had a serious flaw. It was the most heavily armored ship of that time, so they had cannons on there. But the designer forgot one thing. He put the cannons on a deck that was just a tad too high. So it threw the weight off and one stiff breeze, capsized and gone. In contrast with these kinds of promises, you know, the sure thing that everyone wants that ends up falling apart, we are given in the scriptures the sure promises of God. And the apostle John has been beautifully taking us through Areas where, unlike all these other promises of a sure thing, we really can rest our confidence. We really can rest our confidence in what Christ has done. And as the early church was being assaulted with false teacher, who were also, these, these people were coming along saying, hey, I've got a sure thing for you. I've got secret knowledge for you. I've got things that I can tell you that no one else knows about, and you can be a part of the elite. Join us. And in doing so, they would deny the deity of Jesus or deny that he was, in fact, uh, incarnate. God, man, uh, in human, uh, coming, in, coming in the flesh. They would deny his death on the cross as being something that he did as, as God, giving his life for others. Um, they would deny all these things, promising a sure thing. And what John's doing is saying, no, you can know for real who Christ is. Not because of all these false teachers, but instead because of what's really been revealed in him in the gospel. And so we embarked upon the conclusion of 1 John last week, and, and, uh, and, and we're going to conclude now that section today. For all who know Christ can stand with confidence on Christ. And so go ahead and open, if you would, to 1 John 5, verses 13 through 21. And let's go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Out of respect for the Word of God and honor of what we're about to hear, let's, uh, let's stand Here's, here's what he writes. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked of him. And if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit a sin not living to death. There is a sin leading to death. I don't say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that you again would open our hearts to receive your word, that your spirit would work in such a way through these words that he's penned in order to transform us. We pray that you would grace us to guard ourselves from idolatry. It comes in many forms. You would grace us to know that we are in you. Those who have trusted in you by faith, that there would be that confidence in you. And for those here today who have not yet come to you, we would ask that this would be the day that they would turn to you by faith and receive the confidence of having their sins forgiven and walking with the God who made them in Jesus. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus, our risen King. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Last week, we began this section, and and, and we saw, first of all, that when you genuinely know Jesus Christ, you can live confident in eternal life. He says that in verse 13. When you believe, when you rely on him, when you've placed your trust in him alone, you have, present tense, eternal life. And and his purpose here is to establish again the reader's assurance because so many false teachers were trying to come along and and snatch their assurance away. And so uh, we saw that there can be a confidence. He says you can know. We then went on to see that when you genuinely know Jesus Christ, you can live confident also in answered prayer. And he, he talks about this in verse 14 and following, how if we ask, and that's the term that keeps coming up, as you'll recall, he asked and he asks. If you ask God, if you come to God in prayer, you can know that he answers those requests. Now, there was a qualifier. If we ask anything, notice in verse 14, according to his will. And we spent some time on that, unpacking that. When we pray in alignment with God's will, we can know that those prayers are answered um, and we, we developed that a bit. We also talked a little about the sin that leads to death, and we won't take a lot of time to review that. Uh, but just in essence, um, some would see that as being physical death. Um, we were saying, no, that's not the case, because the entire discussion in First John is, is eternal life, which is more than just physical. It's spiritual, and it results in physical, but it's a, an entire floor thing. And death is shown here in contrast with that. And so the flow of the, of the book would show us that rather than that, instead... Uh, it is all that the false teachers have been describing through that, that, that John has addressed throughout this letter. John has addressed the fact that the false teachers are rejecting Christ's incarnation. They're rejecting the cross. They're rejecting the atonement of Jesus. And because of that, they are bringing themselves out of the place where they can receive eternal life and forgiveness. Uh, they, are, they are removing themselves from that place. And so the sin unto death is, is that which is all of those things followed throughout the letter, and that when people embrace that, when they reject God's provision for forgiveness in his son, they in fact reject life. And as a result, they are in the sin that leads unto death. Um, thirdly, we saw that, that uh, when you genuinely know Jesus Christ, you can also live confident in Christ's protection. We saw that in verse 18, um, when he talks about how um, one, who, one who is born of God First referring to those in Jesus who have come to Christ, no one who's born of God remains in that place of sin, sinning without uh, any concern or care, uh, still living uh, as though they were uh, in sin, worshiping sin, loving sin. No, there's not that unbroken pattern of sin in their life. Instead, something changes. But then John in verse 18 also changes the tense of that word born and refers to Jesus. But he who was born of God keeps him, referring to Christ. So Christ's protection, Christ's care, and that the evil one does not touch him. And that word for touch means to fasten or cling to is the idea. And so uh, we saw that, that uh, the enemy, the devil, can't fasten himself or, or cling to us. So we face the battle of indwelling sin. We face temptations. We face all the things that come about in a fallen world. But there is, is a, a difference that Christ has made, and, and the enemy cannot ultimately harm. Uh, and so today we're going to continue now to see another confidence for those who genuinely know Christ. And that is this. You can live confident in your connection with God. You can live confident in your connection with God. 
And as we break this down, we see in the, in the, in the, in the verses before us, in verses 19 and following, this connection with God is described in several different ways. Uh, and, and the first would be this. Your connection with God, we find, actually separates you from the world. Your connection with him, by definition, separates you from the world. Uh, we see that as, as he says, we know we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's a contrast here. Believers are of God. That, that phrase, of God, has the idea of you've, you've, uh, you've, it speaks of origin. You are of God. You, you are genuinely from him. He's given you life. He is your dwelling place. Uh, Jesus would talk about that in, in John 8. And we don't have time to go to that this morning, but I would encourage you to look at that. Uh, When Jesus is talking to the people who are rejecting him, and he's saying, you're not hearing me. You know why? Because you are not of God. You are of your father, the devil. The devil's a liar. He's been a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand for the truth. And he says, but because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. And he concludes that section by saying, he who is of God, there it is, of God, hears the words of God. And for this reason, you don't hear them because you are not of God. So he's speaking of origin. He's speaking of what family are you a part of? And then the contrast. So we know we're of God. We are from him. Those who have received the gospel, those who have embraced Jesus. And yet the world is in a different place. The world system is in a different place. And, and the picture here of the evil one um, and pe- the world lying in the power of the evil one, uh, that phrase has the idea of someone sleeping. Someone taking a nap. And so, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe you like napping. I'm a big fan of naps. I'm there. If I get the chance to take a nap, I remember when I was a kid, I'd be like, I don't want to take a nap. And now it's like, nap, yes, you know. We, we long for it. But, but the picture here is really of someone who is, it's almost as if the devil is cuddling this person and, and coddling them and just sort of like allowing them to rest quietly and, and lazily in his arms. That's what's being described here. And the idea is the truth described here is that the world is very content to be under the control and influence of the devil. The world's fine with that. I mean, they might deny that he exists, thus making his job a whole lot easier. C.S. Lewis has a whole thing on that with the screw tape letters, right? Let's face it, if you're there, you're an enemy, and the person you're trying to attack doesn't believe you exist, let's face it, you've got it made, Right? Super easy. Others do believe in him, but they're kind of obsessed with him. You know, they get involved in things like the occult and other things. They, they, want, they want to seek out that darkness. That also makes it easy for them. But the reality is, 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 as believers, we are not of this world. That's what he's saying here. We're not napping in the arms of the enemy. No, we've been awakened. We're standing. And, and, and though we, we have uh, different places and ways in which we are a part of this world, certainly there are, in a sense, you know, uh, national citizenships or, or, or uh, you know, ways in which we, we function in the world. We are in the world, but we're told we're not of the world. And we want to honor God with all those different things. But ultimately, our citizenship is not here. It, it's in heaven. And we are ambassadors for that kingdom, for the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom. Uh, we are residents of the better city, the better country, referred to in Hebrews. And so here we see that there's a, a massive distinction. And so do we realize that your connection with God means, by definition, you are 
separated from the world? And do we live that way? Do we understand that? Um, And do we realize that our separation from the world is not this thing where it's like, well, I don't go there. I don't do that. Is it arrogance that drives that? Is it us looking down the nose at others around us? Like, oh, not enlightened, obviously. Is that what drives our separation? Is it a snootiness? Um, Is it a fear that drives our separation? Oh, I dare not be there. I dare not do that. Oh, I'll be contaminated by them. I'm staying away from those icky people out there. That's not what's driving this. No, here, the Apostle John is telling us what separates you from the world is your connection with God. And when that's the reason for the separation, it gives you courage. It enables you to enter into the world and be in it, but not of it. But you're not fearful. You're not angry. You're not judgmental and kind of looking down on people. You're not separating yourself in in the sense of an arrogant posture or a fearful posture. Instead, it's a, no, I'm separate from the world because I am connected to God through Christ. And now I've got courage to go in. And it also changes our attitude and how we go in. I now have compassion while I'm there. There's not one part of the world around us that we enter into that is by mistake. Every time you go to the store, that is not an accident. The people who are around you at the store are not there by mistake. God is sovereign. Every person's been planted there. The people you work with, be it in a a, a setting where you're actively running around building things, or maybe you've got a cubicle next to someone, or maybe you've got a certain boss or or whatever the context is. Maybe you're on a team with people. None of those people are on that team by accident. Not one. And when we see this, we see, no, I'm an ambassador for Christ in that place. This thing I have with God is not something I just do on a Sunday and then I slam the door, seal the plastic, and go live the rest of my life. And then I come back on Sunday, open the door, and go back in. No, this is describing a full-orbed life before the Lord. And so our connection with God means that we're separated from the world, but it transforms the way we see that and engage in it. So your connection with God separates you from the world, but secondly, we need to see here that our our connection with God is, is a result of Christ's coming. We see that in the first part of verse 20. Look, and we know the Son of God has come... There it is. That's talking about Jesus' coming. Refuting the Gnostic heresy that was saying, oh, yeah, God would never come in human flesh. Why? Because the flesh is evil. God wouldn't do that. Doesn't fit my parameters of what's true. Therefore, it must be false. I reject that. When, in fact, the scriptures are clear. Jesus clearly taught. And the people who were eyewitnesses clearly saw that, yes, he was human. 100% physical human being. Here's the mysterious part. And 100% God. And you're like, wait, that's 200%. I know. It's a mystery. But it's true. Again, we kind of have to go back to humbling ourselves. If something can only be true if I understand it, the universe is in big trouble. Really, my understanding of it makes it true? Yikers. Yikers. 
That essentially means I can never go to my car and start it. Because I don't understand how that thing works. Not to mention bodily functions. What's going on right now? Who knows, you know? Wow. It's crazy stuff. I don't get it. But thankfully, my getting something and it being true are not the same thing. I think we need to humble ourselves in that way and receive the truth from God who made us. And maybe you're here today and you've never done that. This, this is an opportunity for you to rethink that. And I would urge you to consider that. You know, if your understanding of it makes it true, hmm, there's an awful lot of things that just aren't true. But here we find that this connection with God is what Jesus came to accomplish. That's what he did. And we see some really cool things happening with the language here. I want you to notice something. Look at verse 18. You've got the word no. Verse 19, you've got the word no. Verse 20, you've got the word no. Look at the middle of verse 20. You have understanding. So all three of those words for no are the same Greek word oida. It means to know cognitively, to grasp something, to get it. Understanding is a beautiful compound word. It has the idea of, of with the mind. Okay? So you can see this. Understand, grasp understand, grasp, understand with the mind, and then notice verse 20, so that, that's a purpose phrase, so that, Jesus came so that what? We may know him. Now that word for know, that's the Greek word gnosko. That means to know personally. So you see what John's doing? He came, Jesus came so that you would know so that you would know, understand, so that you would know, understand, so that you would grasp with the mind that you would personally, experientially know Jesus. That's what he came to do. And that's such an amazing thing to consider. The purpose of his coming is not simply that you and I would know about Jesus. No, Jesus' aim was that we would walk with him and know him. And by the way, this is totally consistent with all the promises of the Old Testament and even the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, even the language around the Mosaic covenant. All those things point to personally knowing God. When you look at uh, the law that came on Sinai, when, when God describes people's faithfulness, being faithful to the covenant. It wasn't the language merely of the business person. It wasn't the language of I had an order, it was this big, and you got to come through with it. No, instead it was, you are my people. I am your God. I am being faithful to you. Be faithful to me. It is the tone, picture, it is the emphasis of marital fidelity. That's always been God's intention. And so as John brings this out, he is saying, Jesus came for a purpose so that you would know God. And again, you can know him now by turning to him by faith, by, by admitting that you're a sinner and by running to him for forgiveness. And the Bible tells us that he says, God, the perfect, sinless, holy, holy, holy God, the ruler of all, the maker of all, the sustainer of all, the judge of all. When you come to him in Jesus, we are told he will abundantly pardon. 
Not just pardon. Not half-heartedly pardon. Not reluctantly pardon. Not, okay, are you really serious? I guess. Pardon. No. He is eager to forgive. He's the same father described in that beautiful parable of the prodigal son. The father who waits for the wandering son to return. The father who is open and, and, and runs to him to meet him. The father who also offers forgiveness to the elder brother who had a different form of sin. You know, if the younger brother had the sin of licentiousness, and had to repent of his unrighteousness, the older brother had to repent of his self-righteousness. He was the religious guy. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're very religious and God's calling you to repent of your self-righteousness, which is just as bad as unrighteousness. This is just another form of it, really. The point is, God says, I will abundantly pardon. So your connection with God separates you from the world. Your connection with God is the result of Christ's coming. Thirdly, we would see your connection with God is eternal life. That's the second part of verse 20. Look at what it says. Here's another kind of wordplay going on through this passage. Notice how many times true comes up here. Second part of verse 20. That we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. Notice this is the true God, eternal life. What's he saying? True, true, true. It's emphatic. Because he's confronting the false, false, false of denying who Jesus is. Denying the atonement. Denying that Jesus came in the water and the blood. He referred to that earlier. The birth of Christ was Christ coming as the God-man. The death of Christ was Christ dying as the God-man. Why? He's our substitute. He's the one who died to rescue a sinful people. And by being 100% man, he is our substitute. He is taking our place. And by being 100% God, he pays the price in full. His death is a sacrifice of a life of infinite worth. This is eternal life. So again, we're back to that language of knowing. Knowing to us oftentimes is impersonal. And he's saying, no, this is very personal. This is experiential knowledge. And knowing Jesus in this way, being connected to him personally, is eternal life. Jesus described it by using that analogy of the vine and the branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches. That's what he's talking about. If you're in me, connected to me, you have life. If you're separated from me, you're just a branch on the ground, dried up and dead. But being in me, he says, you have life. And so that's why that phrase in comes up so often. Again, you see in the end of verse 20, we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He's talking about that union of the vine and the branches. Being in him. And this eternal life is something that's enjoyed right now. 
Yes, it results in, in, in the future as well when death is conquered, when Jesus comes back. When he comes back and returns and, and, and sets all things right as the ruler and judge of all, death is ultimately defeated. But the reality is, is for everyone who comes to Jesus by faith and trusts in him right now in this moment by being placed into him like that branch and the vine, when you're placed in him, that life flows into you now. The Spirit of God dwells within you now. God's given you spiritual gifts that he's designed and given you for the purpose of serving him now. You're given hope now, strength now. Does it mean it's easy, all your problems dissolve? No, it's hard. But it's beautiful and it's good. By the Spirit of God dwelling within you, by being immersed into Jesus spiritually when you came to know him. You have been given by him resurrection power from the age to come to live your life today in a new way. You have eternal life. So your connection with God, it separates you from the world. It's the result of Christ's coming. It is eternal life. And lastly, it's exclusive. Your connection with God is exclusive. And that's why he concludes by saying, little children, guard yourself from idols. Why? Because he said, what is true, true, true cannot be compared to what's false. What's true and gives eternal life cannot be compared to those things which are dead. I think of Jeremiah chapter 10, and again, for the sake of time, we can't go there right now, but I'd encourage you to read that as well. Jeremiah chapter 10. You gotta love how Jeremiah describes idols. People would go around and make idols out of wood. And he says, they decorate it with silver and gold. Talking about the idol. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it doesn't totter. Now, be careful. This thing you're about to worship, it might fall over. So you got to like make sure it's propped up okay. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. They cannot speak. They must be carried. They cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. And then he goes on to say, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great. And great is your name in might. And he goes on to describe it. But, but here's the thing. Idols that people make themselves. Um, we, we do the same thing today. We've talked about this many times before. If you're new with us, we will talk about this more. <laughs> but idolatry is alive and well. We might not have a statue in the hallway that we're bowing to, but there are things we make with our own hands that we place our trust in. Um, Paul Tripp, maybe you're familiar with him when he was a young man, he actually worked as a gardener. And there was a day he described when he was working at kind of a wealthy employer's property. He was at the base of the hill. And he's there kind of doing his work. And the guy drives up the driveway in, in a, another new car. And this has sort of been a pattern, right? He's been, this is like, the, how many new cars is this guy going to get, you know? He's seen him do it several times over and over again. 
And so this guy hops out of, of the expensive new toy he has, and he, and he looks at Paul there working in the grass, and he, and he asks him, so what do you think? And uh, Paul said this, he goes, I don't think it's working. And the guy said, I don't know what you're talking about. It's a brand new car. And he replied, I, I think what you're trying to do will never work. And the guy said, I have no idea what you're trying to say to me. And then Paul went on to say, how many cars is it going to take before you realize that an automobile has no capacity whatsoever to satisfy your heart? And I'm like, wow, that's what it's like to have Paul Tripp as your gardener. <laughs> okay. Not sure how long that gig lasted for the guy, right? But, but, but as Paul Tripp put it, he says, it was a big gospel moment. And then he went on to describe how, how when you think about it, you know, the, the sights and smells and touches that God's given us in this beautiful world are amazing. They are to be enjoyed. You know, there, there's, you wake up in the morning, you hear the birds singing, or, or uh, maybe this afternoon you're going to be grilling a tri-tip. You know, that smell, that's a gift from God, people. That's a good thing. Or, or maybe uh, you're, you, you go off to Yosemite and you see the grandeur of Half Dome, or, or you see the power of the wind at the beach and you're just amazed by that, or the grace of, of you know, a, a deer running through the thicket, or, or, or the waves of the sea crashing on the shore. Whatever it would be, these are all amazing things. And yet, he concludes with this important statement. Quote, There is one thing you must always remember as you take in the creation's multisensory display. Creation does not have the ability to satisfy your heart. Earth simply will never be your savior. And then, you think about it, that means every day, every day, you know, we've been built as worshipers. We're worshiping something. That is not the choice. You don't have the choice to either worship or not worship. If you're a human being, you were designed to be a worshiper. You're going to worship something. But the question is, is it going to be worship of the creator? The one who made all things? The one who satisfies? The one who transforms you from within? Or is it going to be part of the creation? which can't do anything in those two areas. Can't satisfy you because it wasn't designed to do that. And it won't ever transform you because it doesn't have the power to do that. Only the creator can do that. Maybe it's not a car for you. Maybe, maybe uh, it's something else. Maybe it's the approval of another person. Maybe it's a circumstance or a plan that you have that needs to come to pass. Maybe it's a relationship I don't know what it is. Frankly, in my least spiritual moments, I've got multiple idols, okay? We all struggle with this. But the question is, are we seeing what he's saying here? Little children, term of affection, guard yourself from idols. By saying little children, he's saying these are believers. <laughs> believers need to guard themselves from idols. We need to, to set up a sentinel to, to have a guard over our, our hearts because our tendency left to themselves will be to run into worshiping things that are not God and attempting to be satisfied in things that are not Him. Guard yourselves, little children. 
beware. An idol is anything that attempts to take the throne of your heart. And sometimes it can be obviously a bad thing. But a lot of times, it's more subtle than that. A lot of times, it's something that's good. It's a gift from God. And what happens is sin comes in and takes this good gift from God and twists it into something that is an idol. Uh, Many have put it like this. A good thing, when it becomes an ultimate thing, becomes a bad thing. There was a, uh, a mistake, another mistake made earlier. Uh, we talked about some of the most expensive mistakes ever made. And just think about idolatry. Uh, there was another one. It was with the S-81 Isaac Peril, which was a submarine that Spain uh, was building. And it was supposed to be state-of-the-art. It was supposed to be the very best thing ever. Back in 2011, I think, they were hoping to have this thing commissioned. Uh, but... Uh, there's going to be four of them, you know? And so they began production. They began making them. And I, if you've ever seen those shipyards where they make submarines, they're massive, right? And they're, they're, they're massive hulls, steel, all the technology that goes in, in there. And uh, all of a sudden, as they're building this thing, and it's practically, you know, the outer hull and everything, and they're getting really far down, down the, the, the list of checklists to make this thing, they discovered something horrible. And that was that uh, as they were designing it, one of the engineers, his decimal point was one off. Just one. One point off. What meant? What did that mean for the, for the sub? It was about 75 to 100 tons overweight. Which meant, essentially, Spain had invested in a submarine that uh, could only move in one direction. Down. Not helpful. <laughs> Yeah, $680 million already been invested in that. It was really a total package of $3 billion. And uh, you can't just kind of brush off that slip up under the rug. And so I, my understanding is that they're hoping that they're going to have these things re-engineered. They actually have to uh, change the size of the vessel. And uh, the calculation is going to cost an extra $9.7 million per meter. <laughs> to make it the right size. But think about that. That, that. that is a great picture of idolatry. Idolatry is essentially investing in a sub that can only go down. Um, no, the truth, the real God, the living God, the genuine God, he's the only one deserving of worship and that's what he calls us to. Why? Because he really is the only true, true, true God. He really is alive. He really does give eternal life. He's the only one who does. He's the only one that can satisfy. He's the only one that has actually designed you to worship him. And to attempt to put anything else in his place, even a good thing, is an act of foolishness, and unfaithfulness and is devastatingly costly because idols always break those who worship them.
So when you genuinely know Jesus, you can live confident in eternal life. You can live confident in answered prayer. You can live confident in Christ's protection. You can live confident in your connection with God that separates you from the world is a result of Christ's coming, is eternal life, and is exclusive. Rejoice that he has given you eternal life. If you're someone here today who's, who's come to him, rest secure in his grip. And if you've not yet come to him, today, trust him. Rest your faith in him alone. Ask him to forgive you of your sin, to separate you from it as far as the east is from the west. Receive the gift of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the God-man, the substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would grace us to grasp these things, to see them, and to to live in a way that pleases you. Not as a result of our own cleverness or the result of our own works, but because of your great mercy. We are told we love because you first loved us. So cause us, Lord, as your people to see our connection with you, to savor our connection with you, and to live as branches that abide in the vine, which is you. Protect us from idolatry, Lord. Grace us to be on guard. For you alone are the true and living God. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now we come to the Lord's table, and as we do so, there's elements that are on the table and in the entryway. If you weren't able to grab one of those, I want to invite you to go ahead and get up and do that now. Not a problem. Just go, go get those. And, uh, and today, as we uh, come to the table, we do this in remembrance of what Christ has done. Uh, we do this to call to our minds uh, the sacrifice he made on the cross And I think God has us do this because we we so easily forget that truth, those things. And so so in this moment, uh, let's, let's go before God and let's think about idolatry. We've just been warned against that. Guard yourself from idols. And, and maybe there's a place in your life or an area where you're realizing, I've been setting hope there. I've been living for this. I've been turning to this other thing for salvation. However, the, God is maybe showing you those things right now. Let's just take some time to pray silently before him and to confess that to him. Lord, we confess to you right now in this time the sin that so easily entangles us. We ask your forgiveness for the ways in which good things can easily become ultimate things to us. And in doing so, they vie for that place in our hearts that must be only for you. 
So Lord, whatever is occupying or trying to occupy the throne of our hearts that isn't you, as we confess this to you, we, we, we ask that you yourself would grace us to remove it, that you would remove it or remove those things. That we would repent of idolatry in any form and that we would worship you alone because you alone are the true, true, true God. You alone give eternal life because you alone are the living God. We remember what Christ has done. We remember the the way in which he willingly offered himself as a sacrifice in dying the death that we deserve. We thank you that he lived the life that we could never hope to live, the life of perfect righteousness. We thank you that he took our place and, and we thank you that your justice and your mercy meet at the cross. And so we consider yet again what he's done. And we give you thanks. Amen. Go ahead and take your container and open the side with the bread. And let's remember, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus broke bread, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and open the cup. Even as we remember and confess, we also must be sure to rejoice. Why? Because the Lamb of God who gave his life to pay for sin and to redeem a people to God the Lamb of God who came to save people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation is also the Lamb of God, the only one who is worthy to open the scroll. In Revelation, when it refers to that moment of the Lamb of God opening the scroll and the seals that are on the scroll and the, the, the conundrum of who can open it, Who is worthy of opening it? There's no one but the Lamb, Jesus. And let's remember, that scroll is the title deed to the universe. It's his. So we remember, we confess, and we rejoice. Give thanks. On that same night he was betrayed, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me.